The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Each business is unique and operated individually of others in the same industry. What they have in common is the potential path to success. Welcome to The Second Stage with your hosts, Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. In today's program, we'll address the obstacles that many businesses find on that path to success and discuss what entrepreneurs and their businesses are doing to stay ahead of the curve. Now, here is Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. Welcome to the show, The Second Stage. This is Jeff Cadlick and my partner, Brendan Anderson, is off this week. Uh, today, we continue our series on exiting entrepreneurs exiting their businesses. A couple weeks ago, on February 22nd, we had a guest, Ali Harding, partnered Orange Kiwi, talk about how entrepreneurs are wired to avoid exit planning. And I would encourage you to go listen to that show. And then last week, uh, my partner interviewed Sean Hutchinson, CEO of Strategic Value Advisors, on how employee engagement matters can help create value uh, in the later stages as you move towards the sale process. Uh, this week, I'd like to in, uh, introduce our guest, Joan Crane, Global Family Wealth Strategist with BNY Mellon Wealth Management. Thanks for being on the show, Joan. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon. It is, it is our pleasure to have you on the second stage. Uh, Joan has written a wonderful white paper uh, called From Entrepreneur to Investor, How to Successfully Navigate the Transition. And uh, she's uh, got a lot of wonderful advice in, in uh, her white paper that we thought that our audience would, would enjoy hearing. Uh, first and foremost, I'm sure you've got a lot of crazy stories uh, advising families over all these years, uh, but your paper cites some shocking statistics about how few family members last beyond the third generation. Uh, can you elaborate on that for us a little bit? Yes, it's, there's been many, many, <clears throat> excuse me, many studies on this on the trajectory of family businesses and closely held businesses, and unfortunately. Uh, only approximately 30%, less than a third of family businesses last beyond the second generation, and only 10% make it to the end of the third generation. Those would be the grandchildren of the founder. Um, and this includes, I mean, even if the business were sold and it were monetized and there was family wealth, the family wealth would also have disappeared up to only 10% remaining and 30% after the second generation. So it's a very sad statistic that people have worked very hard to build their business. The first generation has literally rolled up their sleeves, and hence we have this uh, paradigm uh, saying shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations because the first generation rolls up their sleeves, works very hard, but by the third generation, by the end of that, they're going to have to do it all over again because the family business or the money has gone. Why, why do you think that's the case? Well... 
it's interesting because there's a lot of perceptions as to why it's the case, and, and actually the perceptions are pretty logical, and I would have guessed the same. Um, there was a large study down, done by Fox Family Office Exchange a number of years ago, and, and they asked their members, most of whom had family businesses or had had family businesses, and they said, why do you think that this, this wealth goes away or the business disappears so quickly? And the members answered, like I said, they asked what we would think would be the logical reasons. They said, poor investments, you know, either after we sold the business or as we were reinvesting the money from the business, we got bad investment advice. Or maybe, honestly, we, within our business, took the wrong kind of risks. We tried to expand too quickly. We did investments that were not right. Well, that was 37% of them. Then another 26% said, no, I don't think really it was that. I think it was the economy, you know, with inflation, deflation, energy, volatility, you know, how, how can you keep a business viable and, and how could you even keep the wealth after you've sold the business? Another 16% pointed the finger at Washington and they said, look at the politics that are going on and the taxes that are going up and down and the legal changes all the time. Um, this is just making it impossible for us. And I kind of chuckle at that 16% because I'm thinking if that same survey were done today, it would probably be a lot higher yeah, than 16%, right. <laughs> you know. But the, the bottom line was only 7% of them said, hey, I think something goes on within the family. You know, I think there's some dynamics here. There's poor communication. There's not a good business succession preparation. And so it's hard to know what was really the truth, but there have been some studies done by consultants who've worked for numbers of decades with families that have had businesses. They've gone through their files. They've looked at what was the real reason for these businesses degenerating, and they've agreed with the, the 7% who pointed the finger back at the family, and they said, sure, there were external factors. But in 60% of the cases, we can, we can honestly see a lack of communication, a lack of trust. In at least 25%, a quarter of, our, of the businesses that failed, the heirs weren't prepared. They were suddenly thrust into running a business that they hadn't really been groomed for. And, and they said very, very few of the businesses really uh, failed due to external factors. Hmm. Well, uh, folks, we are you're listening to the second stage, and you can join the discussion using the hashtag uh, hashtag uh, the second stage. You can also email us at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. We are with our guest Joan Crane, senior director and global family wealth strategist at BNY Mellon Wealth Management. Uh, when we come back from this short break, uh, Joan is going to articulate some of the ways and strategies that you can prevent some of these terrible things happening to, to your business. Thanks for t- tuning in to the second stage. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of. A team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance. Tax. Consulting. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, 
music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Hello, this is Jeff Cadlick at the second stage. My partner, Brendan Anderson, is off this week. I'd like to thank all of our iTunes listeners. As you're listening, please don't forget to rate and review us. And you are also listening to us on Voice America Business Channel on voiceamerica.com. Uh, we are here with our guest, Joan Crane, Senior Director, Global Family Wealth Strategist, BNY Mellon Wealth Management. Joan, uh, as you were talking in the first segment, it occurred to me that uh, some of the issue here may be the fact that there's not a lot of great succession planning going on as the matriarch or patriarch of the family is is so busy running the business. They're not spending as much time uh, tutoring you know, the, the next generation on how to be leaders in running that business. You're absolutely right. Um, we've observed in the many families that we've worked with over the, the many decades that it takes a certain uh, type of person and a, an extreme dedication usually to build a successful business, especially if you're the founder and not just the inheritor of it. And so the first generation, the matriarch or patriarch, as you said, is, as, as I had said, lo- literally rolling up their sleeves. And sometimes they're working very long hours for many, many years. During those years, the children are growing up. And there's kind of a vague expectation, well, maybe my kids or my oldest son or whatever it is will will just kind of drift into the business, but there's no conscious attempt to groom them. And in fact, what we find is that the the people who've worked so hard to build their business want to relieve their children of of having to put that much effort and be that um, driven in their lives. So they enable their kids to go off to college and get advanced degrees and be professionals, which is good. But then the expectation that they're suddenly going to come back and magically uh, run this business um, really doesn't play out well. You know, that's something we actually see in the private equity world a lot where uh, people that because they've been an attorney or an accountant or even a private equity professional doesn't necessarily mean that they can run any business, let alone a particular business, uh, even if they've grown up around it. It really takes a, a set of leadership skills that doesn't necessarily translate into something else uh, in any other profession. Uh, I, I, Joan, I promised our listeners that you were going to share some of the ways to prevent some of these uh, things from happening. And so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you save them right now. <laughs> Well, I think it's probably obvious the direction I'm, I'm going to go here, and that is, hard as it may seem, if the thought is that a child or a couple of children will end up running the business, there needs to be a, a concerted effort between matriarch, patriarch, and outside advisors to prepare them for that. 
and in the successful families globally, this isn't just the United States phenomenon, but uh, globally many, fa- many, many family businesses fail, but some are successful. And in the successful ones, there's sometimes even a program, uh, like the, the children will have to have had a certain level of education. They may have had to work outside the family business in a particular related business uh, and come back after two years or whatever, and then be groomed in the family business, going through different jobs. And usually the most successful are where the children start pretty low on the the totem pole and and the ranking and work their way up, and for no other reason than to prove themselves to the management and the non-family members as to learn, you know, as well as learning the skills. Sure, sure. Now, you know, this... I'm dealing really with transitioning the family business to a child, to family. You know, there would this would not apply if the goal were eventually to sell it, which of course is a whole other set of uh, decisions. Sure. So, if how far ahead of a transition, such as a sale or a transfer to the family member, uh, should a business owner start planning for that change? Obviously, we were just talking about kind of grooming the next generation, but. Really, the the concerted effort of the transition process. How far ahead should that that take place? Well, the joke I've heard when I've done panels with attorneys who who deal a lot in this uh, is, well, it should be considered from the moment they found the business. You know, the actual <laughs> creation of the business should be done with the thought of the exit strategy. And and I, what they're thinking here is, you know, how do you, what sort of uh, corporation or partnership or whatever do you structure it, and how is that going to play out? But you know, in practical terms, that's not going to happen. So we would usually say a few years ahead, um, if you could start three years ahead, it's going to give you time to prepare your business. In other words, make, make your business look good, make those ratios, make those financial numbers look sharp, uh, as well as preparing the family members and preparing yourself personally for what's, what your next stage in life is going to be. And so what would you say is the first thing that you should, should focus on? Is it the structure of the organization uh, that, you, that you found, or, or, or is it some personal values or the, the number that you need to retire at? All of the above. <laughs> well, actually, the first thing we, we usually suggest when somebody gets the urge to, to sell their business, we usually say, pause a minute, now step back, and this is probably not something you're going to want to do tomorrow. There is a preparation period here, and um, then consider some factors like the market, the industry, what's the situation externally as well as internally. But then the, a really big decision is going to have to be, to whom is this business going to go? And that, that's really probably the first big step is, are you going to transfer it to a family member? Are you going to at least prepare somebody and see if that will work? Or are you already convinced it needs to be sold? Wow, you just opened up a hornet's nest of, of issues there. I, I can just to see right now, uh, it's trying to determine, you know, which child, if any, should end up running the business. What happens to the other children? Do they remain active in the business? How do they participate financially uh, going forward? Uh, can there's any easy way to walk me and the audience through all that? Well, hornet's nest is the right word, and um I guess before I, I give a few of the positives, I will tell you the way not to do it because it was very sad. Uh, you know, I observed a business that uh, Patriarch and Matriarch had both worked together to build from scratch, 
And at one point, they had, I think, four of their five children working in it, and the plan had been for one of those children to really take it over and the others to continue working. But they wisely decided that this was not going to work out. The one they had thought could take over really didn't have the right skill set and never would. Um, But when they decided that, instead of being transparent to the kids that were working in the business, they decided they were just going to sell a business and uh, divide up the money and the kids would be happy because they'd get money. Um, But, of course, this was a big shock when they had already, it was a done deal and the kids found their business, you know, their jobs were gone. So, you know, what I tell this story to our clients and to people talking about this because it illustrates the importance of if you've got family that might think they're going to work in the business or are working in it, and you're deciding otherwise, it's really critical to, to let them know where things are going because in this particular family, the, uh, the inter-family dynamics uh, have been damaged to the point I don't know that they'll ever be um, very happy again. But So, say so you you're saying transparency it, is, is key to this process kind of from beginning to end? Absolutely, yes. And all the more so if there's kids either working in the business or thinking that they're going to get it just because they've been given some sort of impression that's their job. But, I mean, the other thing you mentioned, though, is what happens if one child does look like they're really ready, they're going to be able to take it over, but the business is a big part of the family wealth, and you do have a couple of other kids, and you love them also, and you want to be, quote, fair. Um, Well, we always talk to people and say, well, what do you think is fair? Does that necessarily mean they all get an equal monetary value? Because maybe the one who's going to take over the business has been working in the business for a lot of years, maybe at a salary that was much lower than that child could have made if they'd just gone off and uh, practiced law or done whatever else their education had, you know, trained them for. So they've helped build that wealth. So maybe they deserve to get the business and the other kids can get something a little less. Um, Insurance is a great way to help on this if the patriarch and matriarch are insurable you know, to buy some insurance, life insurance, so that when they pass away, the other children can have money that replaces the fact they didn't get the business. So there's probably lots of different ways to, to consider that issue. Uh, the person that's working there probably draws a current salary and maybe the other other children don't. Uh, but what happens if... if uh, if things don't go as well with the business, I mean, you had pointed out uh, the uh, top of the show that you know, oftentimes the businesses don't perform. Are there strategies that that the the non non management children can take to protect themselves against concerns about the value of their ownership tied up in the business? Yeah, that that's a very very touchy subject, and that's why we usually say, if at all possible, the non business, non-management business children, don't make them have uh, shares in the, in the business or interests in the business at all. It's, it can be at all, find some other way to compensate them, be it in life insurance savings, the, the home, something so that they're separate because there's a lot of litigation over this when they feel that the business going downhill is the fault of their sibling. Um, and, and they feel their own, as you had said, their own wealth is disappearing and they, they're helpless. Um, you know, the, uh, I have counseled at some families where I've, I've really tried to emphasize on the one child that's working the business uh, to the extent, again, he can be transparent. 
uh, he or she <laughs> can be transparent and share on a regular basis with the other children what the, the profit and loss statements, um, you know, the prospects for the next coming quarter, et cetera, et cetera, just so they feel like they're at least part of it, even if they aren't making the decisions. So is your advice if the most of the family's value is tied up in the business and the business is largely being transitioned, the leadership anyway is being transitioned over to uh, one of the children that there needs to be some kind of a liquidity event so that the other children can realize some value and gain some independence from the business? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say a liquidity event with thinking of the business itself. Hopefully there's some liquidity somewhere. And I mean, event makes people think, oh, that's going to be a sale of the business or a part of the business. And I mean, that could produce some nice liquidity, but typically that's not what I see. Um, usually the liquidity for the other children comes from, as I said, either a life insurance that pays off at the death of the second parent or from savings that the parents have been able to, to get as they save money from the business, um, the family home, you know, various things like that. So they don't end up getting any, uh, ideally, they wouldn't end up getting any ownership in the the business. They would just get their their quote-unquote share of the estate in other ways. Yeah, and you said the key word, ideally, because um, I'll admit that is somewhat idealistic. Um, probably half the cases I've seen, there's just not enough other money for the parents to feel comfortable uh, doing it that way, and they do the other children do end up with some shares in the business. And there's various things that um, we try to work with them to provide. An exit strategy is key. You know, some children are happy. Uh, I, I could think of one right now in my mind where the sister was thrilled that her brother was running a business where she had a good part of her own wealth was tied up and it was her dad's, their dad's business. But, uh, you know, so some of them are quite go along with it quite well, but some of them will want to get out. They'll have aspirations of their own. Maybe they've inherited that entrepreneurial spirit that the parent had who built the business. So if there can be an exit strategy over time, think of ways the cash flow from the business could fund a stock redemption or a way for the kid who wants out to get out. Interesting. Interesting. So how often... Uh, you know, what percentage of the time would you say that family members are not aligned around the sale of the family business or the trans transfer? And what are the typical issues or concerns around that? Uh, aligned around the, the sale or the transfer, meaning they're, they're not aware of what's going on? Just or about an agreement. So, for instance, if some of the mm -hmm. children are um, you know, doing pretty well in life and, and don't really have an interest in uh, you know, the distributions that are, are a need for the distributions of the business and they've got other interests and uh, the heir apparent is an obvious one, um, I was just trying to understand you, you know, oh. what are some of the dynamics around um, uh, the sale of a business and uh, what are kind of the, the big issues typically? Yeah, it, I'd say less, well, less than 50% of, of are the, half, quote, happy families where all the other kids are fine and um, they've got their own lives and they're quite happy with the one running the business. Again, that's idealistic. It does happen, but, uh, but it's 
certainly not the norm. Um, so, again, the issues are, are pretty much as we were talking. It's what's going on in that business where that's my money and I really want that and I'm going to need that money for a house. So I'm going to need it for my kids' college. I'm going to need it to retire. Um, you know, the, the anxious um, looking on of the other kids can just really be poisonous. Uh, for the siblings, you know, as far as their own relationship. And um, I'm, I've just been working with a family where it was very sad because the kids had got along very well. They still shared the same values, and they all, loved, quote, loved each other. But this business of the, of the family business, which was transitioning very clearly to one child, was um, destroying his relationship with his two siblings. So what, what things can children or parents do with their children to maybe address some of this stuff, you know, as we're talking two or three years in advance uh, of a process? And, and maybe like that one family decided that it was ultimately made sense just to sell the business and distribute the proceeds as opposed to handpicking one child to be the heir apparent for, for the business. What, what things can yes. the exercises can they do? The biggest thing is to have some some meetings. Um, I hate the word family meetings. Um, usually, people reject that. They don't. They think of them as unpleasant. Who likes a meeting? You know, that's something you have to do at work, and you really don't want to do. But um, I try to edge it in as part of maybe a family vacation, a family retreat. Have a couple of hours where the family sits down and actually talks about what's going on. What's going on with this business that we've built? What were the values that the parents had to put in to make the business grow? Uh, what do they think, what do the parents think is going to happen to the business in the future? What's the children's impression of it? Again, it all goes back to communication, and sometimes that's just neglected. But where we can step in is oftentimes being an outsider, an objective outsider, is walk in for a couple of hours on that, quote, family meeting and facilitate discussion. And we'll get, we'll get people talking a little and sharing, the parents sharing and the children sharing. And just understanding each other and what the plans are is a huge step towards success. And how much do you have to know about the family dynamics, you know, before you step into a room, whether, you know, what the business is and its history and what the children are and how they're doing and, and kind of their personalities before you step into a room to have the quote unquote family meeting? As much as possible. Uh, I've, I've had some where I've actually been able to interview not only the parents, I insist on interviewing the parents preferably in person, but if not, that's not possible, a couple of phone calls. And by interviewing, I mean a long discussion about what, how they built the business, the history, what they see happening to it, what, they're, you know, what the problems they might foresee. But uh, ideally, I'll also get a chance to talk with the kids, each one of them individually, separately, um, and prepare myself for how they're, because they're always coming from different directions, even though the parents think they know what the kids are all uh, after. So... When you say, how much do I need to know, it, it, it's, um, it doesn't work as well if I walk in blind. And in fact, I, I don't think I've ever agreed to do that. But the, the more information, the more background, the more helpful of, you know, any outside facilitator can be. And I imagine that the more often that they meet, you, you know, the better prepared, uh, the better, you know, the more well-organized, the more aligned, you know, the family and children are around, uh, you know, this this family transition, if you will, that one meeting is typically not going not gonna to cover it? No. The first meeting is usually a very stilted, uh, nervous affair. 
Um, we do some break the ice exercises, which actually have a purpose besides just breaking the ice. We do a very simple communications exercise to uh, usually there's some talkative ones in the family. There's some quieter ones. There's ones that like to analyze and think. There's others that jump to conclusions. And we do a simple communication exercise that points these things out. And, and it, it really helps because the family members kind of laugh at each other and at themselves. Like, oh, yeah, I knew I was a bossy one, you know, and they all sort of loosen up a little. Um, but that's the first meeting. And then the second meeting, you're able to build on that trust and that sort of less wary attitude and, and get down to a little more business. And, yeah, I think, and certainly it's that you're starting three years out you'd want to do it a couple of times each year. And so are these exercises that you're talking about just really about building trust and opening lines of communication? Yes, that's the, the primary goal, especially the communications ones. We also do some about family values, because although that may sound esoteric and unrelated to the business, um, the values are what hold the family together through the generations, and they're usually what was in the owner's mind when they were creating the business. So just finding their common thread of, you know, what, what are their priorities in life? What do they consider really important in the big picture? Um, we find is another bonding thing that, that helps them understand each other, which, again, it, the, big, the big problem is just understanding and trusting. Mm-hmm. And in those family meetings, is it just, you know, the, the mother, the father, the, the children, and yourself, or are there typically extended family other shareholders, um, you know, other advisors in that room? It all depends on the business. Um, here in North America, a lot of the ones that I see are the, the business was built by parents who are around right now. They haven't even transitioned from the very first generation to the second. So typically in those meetings, because of the age of the family members, it's the parents who built the business and, and their kids and sometimes uh, teenage or early 20 grandkids. Um, but we do have some families uh, where the wealth has been around longer. We're into generations three or four. We have one in Florida that we're, we've been working with. Uh, we've now got five generations. Now, they're not all in the room at the same time because um, over the years we've been working with them, some have passed away and others have grown up to the age that they can be included. Um, but typically, just because of an age issue, there's not usually more than three generations in, in any one meeting. That's great. Uh, you're listening to the second stage and our guest, Joan Crane, uh, Senior Director, Global Family Wealth Strategist at BNY Wealth Management. Um, I also want to remind everybody that each week we want to provide actual advice and have you continue the di- dialogue through comments and questions on our blog at evolutioncp.com. I also want to thank our sponsor, RSM. Uh, the leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on small and mid-sized businesses nationwide with more than 6,700 people in 75 U.S. cities. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about planning for the eventual transition of the business to what you do after you sold the business. Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. 
McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of. A team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance. Tax. Consulting. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the second stage. This is Jeff Cadlick. Uh, you can always follow us on Twitter at evolution underscore CP. Uh, we are here with our guest, Joan Crane, Senior Director, Global Family Wealth Strategist, BNY Mellon Wealth Management. And, uh, you know, we've been spending the entire show so far talking about all the events and planning leading up to the sale. Now, let's say the sale is taking place or has taken place kind of for the rest of the show. Um, so you point out, Joan, uh, often that the business owner neglects to plan for his or her own lives after the business is sold. So what do you mean by this? What advice can you give people on this issue? Yeah, well, as we talked at the beginning, um, to build a successful business requires a lot of focus, a lot of dedication. And Typically, there's not a lot of attention paid to, well, what am I going to do and what's my life going to be like when I no longer run this business? And, you know, oftentimes business owners have had to focus so strongly on the business that they really haven't had time to develop a lot of outside interests, hobbies, even maybe friends um, or connections with family. So as the business sale or transition to children is progressing, that actually ramps up their need to focus and their need to be right in the middle of it all gets even more intense, uh, which creates a vacuum when suddenly the deal is done. Um, either the, the business has gone to the kids, the money's in the bank, whatever, um, and suddenly there's a life ahead. But often these people will be in their 50s, early 60s, and uh, with a lot more vim and vigor. So when we're working with them, we usually suggest, first of all, that they think ahead. What are, you know, is golf really going to, something that fulfills you seven days a week, you know, for the next 20 years? Probably not. So what will what will you want to do? And it might be volunteering. It might be traveling. But very often, it's, it's starting another little business. You know, we call these serial entrepreneurs, but sometimes that 
ACH, late 50s, 60s, it's not going to be another huge business that you have to devote so much time to, but maybe there's something related to what you did. Maybe it's consulting or maybe it's a small business uh, that has some relationship to your expertise. Got it. Got it. And so, again, when when do you need to start thinking about this? As you were saying, there's this bit of a vacuum as you're leading up to the transaction. There's nothing else but the transaction, and you can't really plan for anything else. When do you start kind of thinking about what life is like when, you know, you're on your own? Yeah, at least a year out, you would be thinking not only if you were going to have another little business, but even if you're going to be getting a nice payout from selling the business, you'd need to want to establish a uh, relationship with somebody who's going to manage that money, as we say, with a wealth manager. Get to understand them, maybe give them a little bit of, as we would say, play money or some money to test them out, see how that relationship's going to work. Because when the big chunk of money comes, you're going to want to be ready um, and well-tested and well-trusting of of who you're going to work with on that. Um, The other thing that's very important to start at least a year ahead is looking at the financial aspect. You know, how much are you really going to get for that business if it's going to be sold? Or, you know, how much can you, you know, what sort of value can you put on it if you're transferring it to children to get a payout from them? Maybe it's in installments. But, again, what is the business going to pay you? And your expectation might be something very high. But then look at what do you really need? What is your new life going to be like and what's your living expense? Um, We just did a a projection today for somebody, and I was thinking, wow, I don't know if this amount that they're going to get from the business is going to satisfy what I think their lifestyle is going to be like. And lo and behold, when we did the projection with some very conservative numbers for investing and for what the growth would be, it came out fine. There'd be quite a bit of money left, uh, even if they lived into their 90s. Um, So I think that has to be done carefully and to give an idea of what you really need to get out of the sale. You bring up an interesting point there. Uh, Even if they live into their 90s, uh, I'm one of these bullish people that thinks that uh, more and more people are going to live beyond 100 uh, how do you guys account for that in your your planning right now? And and how and obviously there's health related issues and whatnot, but there's this growing general trend towards living longer. Yeah, we do run the projections way out. I mean, it's, sometimes people will just tell us, "Don't don't go beyond ninety. I don't want to. I don't even want to think about what my life would be like then." But um, we'll run them far out, and what we do also ramp up. Um, if they say, oh, we only spend this much, we only think we're only going to spend such and such, uh, we'll say, well, think about health care. You know, the inflation rate that you've projected in general is probably not going to be the same inflation rate that goes up with health care. That's probably going to keep increasing at some phenomenal rate. So we'll build in extra cushions uh, in our projections to, to account for variations like that. Okay. All right, so now I've, I've set aside a big chunk of time in this show to talk about the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is taxes. So taxes can eat up a big chunk of the sale proceeds. Are there some things a business owner can do to avoid these? Avoiding them entirely might be um, a bit ambitious, but certainly there's some things to uh, significantly reduce the taxes. And just so we know what we're talking about here, we're talking about both income tax which is ordinary income and capital gain. And we're also talking about the transfer tax, the cost of the estate tax if the, uh, the business or former business owner dies with the big pot of money, or the gift tax if 
different interests in the business or the money is being gifted to children. So to start off with, the income tax is usually what, what's the most preoccupying at the moment because it's going to hit a business owner right away. Um, they're going to sell a business that they only have a certain cost basis in and there's going to be a huge capital gain. So there's different ways to, to mitigate that, maybe spread the, the proceeds the, out through an installment sale instead of getting one big lump sum in a year, have it come over a number of years. Now, there's pluses and minuses to that. You know, do you trust the new buyer who's going to be paying you on these installments? And if it's your your kids who are, you're buying on an installment sale, what's going to happen if they're unable to pay one of the installments? Is that going to hurt the family dynamics? So it's not all gravy, but it is um, a commonly used thing is to do the installment sale, both because the buyer then has a little bit of an easier time as well as the tax results to the seller. Um, there's also the big question of do you do a stock sale, which typically owners want to do that. Just sell the stock and get rid of all liability, get your capital gain, and be done. But the buyers would more often like to just buy your assets. And then they and why is that? They get a, they, well, first of all, they don't want your any lingering liability that, you know, you may assure them there's none, but they're never sure that that's true. Um, they also, if they buy the assets, they can depreciate. They get them at, at whatever they paid for at the, the market value then, and then they can start depreciating them. So it's a better deal for the buyer if it's an asset sale. But there are ways to mitigate. There's ways to do an asset sale and still get some of the tax benefits of a stock sale. This gets extremely technical, and um, that's why it's very, very important to have, if you're looking at this, to have very experienced legal advice so it's structured properly. I um, couldn't I, agree more on that last issue. I think that uh, I, as buyers of businesses ourselves, we're always pushing for an asset sale. We're always amenable to cr creating... Uh, win-win solutions there, but those those uh, depreciating uh, asset opportunities and holding liabilities back towards the seller are of value to a a, uh, a buyer, and the sellers need to be aware of that. Right. Yeah, your hat's on the other head right now. <laughs> if you're yeah, thinking exactly. from the seller's point of view, yeah. I mean, one one thing that t that works for some businesses also is to do the sale to basically to your employees through an ESOP. Um, that's a particular tax advantage way of, of selling the business over some period of time, and it ends up going into a trust for the employees. Um, that's more often done with a little bit larger businesses, your typical mom and pop. Um, the legal um, and, and tax accounting fees for that would probably not uh, justify be justified by any tax savings. But it is something that we're seeing more and more of with larger businesses. Um, now, when we get into the gift or estate tax, this is where it's critical to start well ahead, preferably your good three years before you're selling the, the business. Because if you want to gift this to your children or a child, um, the best thing to do is gift it when the business hasn't grown a lot, when the business still can get a low valuation. Uh, and you can discount the gift at, at a good maybe 40% of what the real value is, just because you're gifting minority interests, maybe a family limited partnership interest or some just some minority interest in stock, and you're gifting it at a time when the business isn't obviously worth a lot of money. You know, if you wait until you're on the eve of a sale and you have some nice juicy offers, 
sitting there on the table, the IRS is not going to go along with a huge discount. Uh, so how does that typically work? If I were to transfer uh, <clears throat> the ownership of a business to my children, I think it's going to be worth a lot more in the future than it is now. You know, what happens to me and, and my estate plan? Obviously, I'm, I'm hoping to transfer it at such a value that there's enough there for me and my wife to, to retire on, right? Right. And uh, that's a key point because I have seen many occasions where great tax planning has been done and the, the discounts have been wonderful and they usually go into trusts for the kids. Usually the parents don't want to just give them outright the stock or the other interests, but suddenly these kids' trusts are enormous and the parents are thinking, my gosh, I wonder if I have enough money to live on. Um, that's not a happy situation. So, again, you usually want, and, and the other thing is usually the person who built the business, at least if they're starting three years before they might even sell it, they want to keep control. So they either want to keep a majority interest or at least keep the voting stock, or if it's a partnership, keep the general partnership interest themselves. And there is, is there any way to transition those assets and, I guess, remove, I guess, any liability if the parents were to be sued, uh, you know, to keep keep creditors uh, hands off of of those assets. Well, we get into the whole uh, issue of asset protection here, and uh, I mean, we usually say the first rung is have some good liability insurance, both within the business and and both personal uh, umbrella as well. Um, as far as the parents themselves, I, you know, they would not want to just be a general partner in their individual name if it's a partnership structure. They'd want to have a corporation uh, or an LLC partner to be the, the general partner. Um, you know, other than that, I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of any uh, particular techniques for asset protection. So you're listening to Second Stage, and we're here with our guest, Joan Crane, Senior Director, Global Family Wealth Strategist, BNY Mellon Wealth Management. Uh, Joan, I imagine you can download some of this information we're talking about on your website at bnymellonwealthmanagement.com. Is that correct? Yes. Um, I'm not familiar with the exact uh, uh, structure of the, of the website. I do know that if you put in, uh, we have a good search feature, so if you put in certain of the keywords that I've been saying today or that you just might think about when you're thinking about business transitions, um, you, you will probably come up with things such as the white paper that Jeff referred to at the beginning of the program. Um, I wrote a, a white paper called Entrepreneur to Investor, and it covers everything we've talked about today and then some. So it's a good kind of beginning um, document to to catch up on all these ideas. It sure is, and uh, I really enjoyed reading it myself. Uh, to those out in the second stage audience, we want to hear from you. Uh, we want to hear what works and what doesn't. We want to create a true community of entrepreneurs, helping entrepreneurs. Please reach out to us uh, on our blog at evolutioncp.com. We're going to take a final break here on the second stage, and when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about uh, – who are the key players in this whole process and how to put together a good team of advisors? Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of. A team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance Tax Consulting. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. This is Jeff Cadlick. Uh, you can listen uh, to this episode and others by going to voiceamerica.com to their business channel. And you can also uh, go to iTunes and search podcasts for the second stage. We're here with our guest, Joan Crane, uh, Senior Director of Global Family Wealth Strategist at BNY Mellon Wealth Management. It's a mouthful. Uh, and as we were cutting to our break, I just want to remind people of the website. Uh, the BNY Mellon Wealth Management.com website. Use their search tools to find uh, articles. The article that uh, we've been referring to in the show is from Entrepreneur to Investor, written by Joan. It's a great article. There's a lot of detail in there, much more so than we've been getting into on this show. Um, during the break, Joan, you and I were talking about uh, what happens if somebody waits a little long in this process before they start this, this planning. Yeah, I, I think um, my example that I was mentioning to you, Jeff, was somebody who, a very conscientious, hard-driving business owner, but he was, again, focused on the business, and suddenly when he was very close to selling it, as in a couple of months out, realized he was he had a lot of money here and he really should have gifted some of these interests in the business to his kids long ago. Um, I was uh, uh, not sure we could still do it and get any discounts, but I worked with his excellent attorney, and we agreed that there was still a potential for some discounting because he was only gifting minority interests, and he was putting them into a kind of trust, a grantor-retained annuity trust, which would tie those interests up for a while. So it wasn't like the kids were getting the full value right away. And um, although the discount wasn't the ju- juicy 40% that it would have been if we'd done it uh, earlier and if the business had been valued lower, but he did get a nice, uh, at least I believe it was 20% off, maybe a little more, uh, because he was gifting smaller interests and kept control himself. So all is not lost. If, you come, if you're coming to the end of the wire here, again, excellent 
uh, advice is so critical. Legal advice is really critical. So the operative term there is is uh, minority amounts, not not control. Yeah, in that situation. absolutely. It was uh, minority. I mean, the two are tied together, but yeah. Um, yeah. So we have a couple minutes here, uh, and and you stress the importance of having a good team of advisors. Who are these key players, and how does someone find the right people? Usually, uh, a good team will include an attorney, a couple of attorneys, probably uh, one who specializes in transactions like this, M and A transactions, business sales, and another who does more of the tax planning, the estate planning. Um, an excellent accountant also, um, and maybe another accountant who does business valuations. Uh, certainly the valuation professional uh, that a business owner will choose is a, is a very important player um, because he may be called upon to testify to represent uh, a discount to the, that the IRS, is, to represent the, the business owner in a discount that's being challenged by the IRS. So again, somebody who has those business valuation credentials is critical. Um, probably a business broker um, and a wealth manager, such as ourselves. <laughs> such as Joan Crane. Quarterback <laughs> yeah. Hey, and Joe, can you give everybody your contact information? <laughs> I think it's probably better because this is a, a national uh, call um, and there's a lot of people out of my area and I'm Florida. I think it's better for them to go to the, the BNY Mellon uh, wealthmanagement.com to, to find the right person to deal with. Um, hey, I was just trying to promote you, you know. I mean, yeah, you're doing well, a great job for us here. <laughs> I, I, just don't, I don't want to have to uh, no, I understand. giving people to their other... other. Um, but anyway, um, the wealth manager can play an important role early on because, as I said, it's going to be important to establish that relationship before the big amount of cash comes in. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention also an insurance advisor um, or two, you know, somebody for the, the whole liability, property, and casualty, but also... It'll, potentially for life insurance. Well, I couldn't agree more. Uh, this is a huge event in people's lives. And while uh, you will certainly chalk up a lot of expenses uh, with all those advisors, I think in the long run, not having them and having a lot of unfortunate supply, surprises can be a, a lot worse. Joan, I want to thank you for being on the second stage. Uh, really appreciated all of your, your insights as we wind down here, I uh, want to thank everybody listening in this week. We hope that you've got some good takeaways from Joan and some action items here. Certainly go to the bnymellonwealthmanagement.com website to uh, research some of their uh, content as well as uh, find a uh, wealth advisor uh, as you begin the process uh, a couple years in advance at least, if not three. Uh, also want to point everybody towards our show next week. Uh, our friend Tim Brown, author of Jumping Into the Parade, will be on the show. Uh, terrific guy, and uh, I think I have a lot of wonderful things to, to share. And finally, I uh, want to make sure that our crowd out there in the second stage land has passion for possibilities. Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. Thank you for tuning in this week to the second stage. Please join Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson again next Monday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a successful week.